The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. The late 1980s and early 1990s were a golden age for what was called syndicated television. For those unaware, syndicated TV was a peculiar brand of programming that originated in the United States, whereby production houses and studios made television programs straight for the syndicated marketplace, i.e. local stations around the country that normally filled their airtime with shows that used to air on a network, but had now been cancelled, hopefully after a long and successful run. Before the box set, before streaming, before binging, selling your TV show to syndication was a way for production companies to make money off a dead project. And if your show was successful and long-running, this could be potentially very lucrative. Star Trek arguably wouldn't have had the success it had without syndication. To qualify for syndication, a show needed to run for at least three full US television seasons or have made at least 65 episodes, which was considered the minimum necessary for stripping, or erring every night of the week in the same time slot. This concept would baffle me as a kid when I would read about it in magazines like Starlog. I didn't have access to 24-hour TV stations, so repeat errings on a daily basis or syndication was an alien concept to me. Star Trek heard once a week on BBC One. Hell, I didn't even know what the word syndication meant. I was used to a TV show being heard once a week. When the series finished, it would stop being on. Next week, a new show would take its place. Later in the year, a new series of the original show would start. Or wouldn't. Repeats were quite rare, unless it was sitcoms like Dad's Army, Some Mothers Do Have Them, or Are You Being Served, which always seemed to be on. The idea that there were TV stations that heard repeats of Star Trek every day seemed like Nirvana. Pretty early on, studios hit upon the idea of selling shows directly to syndication, skipping the network completely. This had its advantages. The studios didn't need to be bothered with network censorship, and they could make shows at a budget and reap the commercial benefits almost immediately. Direct for syndication started with cheap game shows and sitcoms, but by the late 1980s, spearheaded by the success of Star Trek, The Next Generation, decent genre entertainment was being created for this market. While Star Trek remained relatively conservative, other shows pushed the boundaries. The Red Shoe Diaries and Dream On featured lots of nudity. War of the Worlds wasn't ashamed to show lots of lovely gore. And Highlander centred around a lead character who beheaded somebody every week. The horror genre was served reasonably well, with shows like Monsters, Tales from the Dark Side, and two shows based upon movies. A Nightmare on Elm Street had the not-very-good Freddy's Nightmare, and the subject of today's show, Friday the 13th, the series. Originally titled The Thirteenth Hour, producer Frank Mancuso Jr. realised the potential of tying this series into an existing franchise and quickly changed the title. 
That said, there are no connections to the film series, Friday the 13th, and there are no references to Jason Voorhees or his backstory. The series' opening episode, The Inheritance, was written by William Taub and directed by William Fruitt. A first glimpse of the show was the opening titles, eschewing a cold open or a teaser. The camera swoops around various antiquities, banking and swerving. Some CG trickery seems evident, but both the images and the music are quite evocative. For your listening pleasure, here's the opening theme. It is, of course, a dark and stormy night as the episode opens on Vendredi Antiques. Vendredi being French for Friday. R.G. Armstrong plays the owner and proprietor of the store, Louis Vendredi. He potters around, agitated. He tries to palm off some customers, one of which is a young girl named Murray, played by Sarah Polly. Mary is trouble from the get-go, being all, she's not my mother, and playing with the antiques despite Louis's warnings. Of course, she picks a creepy-looking doll to play with and steals away into the pouring rain. The doll talks to Murray, who's accosted suddenly by some street mechanics. They don't really do anything to her or even imply nefariousness, but the doll slits their throats anyway. Lewis finds the girl outside with the doll and takes them both back inside, where he proceeds to kick her back out of the store along with her parents. He mutters something about not doing your bidding anymore before cloven hooves are seen descending the wooden basement stairs and the antiquities start terrorising poor Lewis. Lewis is dragged screaming and kicking straight into hell. It's an effective, if tried and true, opening. In another time, Lewis would have been played by Vincent Price. The effects are simple and, yes, cheap, but are adequate for this era of TV. The cut between the next scene, which is colourful and in bright sunshine, is well done. We meet our first cast member, Louise Roby, as Mickey Foster. She exposits the setup for us in this clip. I don't know why this Uncle Lewis left me the store. I hadn't even met him, let alone this cousin that I'm supposed to be sharing everything with. Okay. Maybe I can sue your cousin for a greater percentage of the inheritance. I can get in some litigation experience. This is actually a very economical scene. I don't know if it's the actor's choice to play Mickey's fiance as a slime ball, but it works. Roby delivers exposition well, and even looks like she's not sure why she's with this guy. Roby is a beautiful former model who dropped the name Louise professionally when she started modelling. I'm convinced that she is who Todd McFarlane based his interpretation of Murray Jane Watson on, as opposed to artist Eric Larson, who based his look for MJ on Peggy Bundy. 
She tracks on down to the store, which, as you just heard in that clip, she's inherited from a mysterious uncle she's never met before. Upon arrival, she discovers that it's a 50-50 inheritance, with her cousin Ryan Dalion, the second member of the cast, played by John DeLamay. Ironically, LeMay would go on to appear in a Friday the 13th movie, Jason Goes to Hell. This clip is the first meeting between our two central characters. Don't tell me. You're Ryan Dalion. Yeah, that's me. Ryan the Lion. How'd you know? Uncle Lewis's lawyer told me you'd be here. I'm your cousin Mickey. How do you do? Michelle Foster? <laughs> Michelle? Jeez. I, I I thought the telegram said Michael Foster. I was expecting a guy. I, forgive me, please. So, sure does change things. Not really. LeMay is a typical archetype of this time. A little bit David Addison, a little bit Tom Cruise. He possesses a nice line in snarky, snappy patter and flirty banter. The fact that Mickey is his cousin doesn't seem to be bothering him. He has good knowledge of the arcane due to his reading of a lot of comics. Ryan's a lot more impressed with Vendredi antiques than Mickey is, who seems scared stiff of the place. And she convinces Ryan to sell the antiques, sell the premises, and then split the cash 50-50. The sale goes ahead, as planned, and one of the customers who shows up is the father of the small child from the opening scene. He's returned to buy Murray the doll, which apparently she hasn't stopped talking about since they were last here. After the sale is closed, and Ryan and Mickey have decided that within a few more days they should be able to shut up shop and move on with their lives, they are visited by Jack Marshak, played by Chris Wiggins. Marshall drops the bombshell that will turn this from a one-off into a weekly series, telling them that he supplied Louis Vendredi with all of the antiquities. In this clip... Your, your uncle and I were boyhood friends. I taught him his first magic and read him his first tarot. I opened his eyes to the world beyond our own. And which one is that? Well, the world of spirits, the netherworld. Oh, you don't expect us to believe that, do you? You can expect me to believe that. You may not want to. Look, Lewis was always deathly afraid of growing old, and he was passionate about wealth, and those two things ruled him until he dabbled in things that I wanted no part of. Like what? Like deucins. Devil worship. Very good. How did you know that? Comic books. Deucins is a name, ancient name, given by the Gauls for a demon or devil. Yes, diablerie. Lewis was always telling me that he'd done his research and that he was ready to make a pact with the devil, something to do with his antiques, in exchange for which he would get immense wealth and immortality. Well, he couldn't have done that. He wouldn't be dead, would he? It would seem so. I suppose we'll never really know. Unless maybe he left some kind of record about what happened to his antiques. Guess what? 
found something. After learning that the objects are cursed, they must get back every single one. This means we have to get back everything Uncle Lewis sold. Every pin, every tie tack, every stick of furniture. Not to mention everything we sold. Great inheritance, huh? Where do we begin? Oh, my God. The Inheritance is a solid pilot episode. Characters are introduced well and are fully formed, especially in Mickey's case, and the show's premise introduced organically. The setup for the series given impetus by Mickey and Ryan's guilt that they put all these objects back out there into the wild. The show manages to eke out a fur level of tension, despite the low budget being visible on screen from the restricted sets and cheap-looking videotape upon which the show has been shot. The performances are all aimable, with John DeLamay channeling Bruce Willis and Roby providing ample opportunities to be a straight man sceptic in the Dana Scully mould. Sarah Polly is particularly good in the guest star role, with the story tapping into two great fears creepy dolls and even creepier kids. Mickey, Ryan, and Jack rename the shop Curious Goods, and a series is born. Of course, when looking at a show like this, episode two is always the one to watch. A good pilot episode is one thing, but we can all name a number of TV shows that ran that were never quite as good as the pilot. The Poison Pen was chosen to set the show off proper, and it's another decent episode. Mickey and Ryan uncover a cursed quill being used by a corrupt priest and set off to retrieve the item going undercover as monks. Yes, the most credulity-stretching part of this show is that Roby could pass as a boy. Yes, there's even the requisite binding her boobs up gag. But even with this, and dressed in monk's robes and hoods and devoid of all makeup, Roby still has those cut glass cheekbones and beautiful big blue eyes. Now, sure, lots of people possess beautiful cheekbones and big blue eyes of whatever gender description, but looking at Roby and thinking it was a man may have led to some sexual confusion for certain people. We also learn from this episode that Chris Wiggins can do a passable Yorkshire accent, but struggles with Irish. The series hits its stride with episode 4, A Cup of Time, which exploits the Friday the 13th formula to the hilt. At its best, the series is an anthology show, but with the benefit of a recurring cast, although the main cast won't really be the focus of the stories. The episode centres around Lady Di, D-I-E, a purveyor of her metal pop, who's had a massive hit with a rock version of I'm a Little Teapot, presumably so they didn't pay any royalties on the song. Di has the same problem of many a superstar. She can't prevent the ageing process, but this isn't a problem given she's latched onto some borrower's ivy, a bizarre tea leaf that gives the brewer whatever they wish for, at the cost of something else, normally a life. Simultaneously, a number of people in the area have been showing up dead or are missing, one of which is an elderly friend of Mickey, Ryan and Jack's local social worker. A Cup of Time works on a number of levels, balancing its script elements well. It's not groundbreaking horror storytelling, but it's effective. 
The fun comes from seeing how differently life was on 80s TV, where realism was something that happened to other people. For example, Ryan and Mickey just wander into an autopsy, where the cop and the coroner in charge don't immediately kick them out, but actually answer their nosy questions. It's also the first autopsy in the history of ever to be performed on a fully clothed body. You can argue that the story is predictable, and it is, but it's competently written and structured, and the characters are so interestingly drawn that it works. The cops are really bad at their jobs, though. Overall, it's unpretentious entertainment, and it continued thus throughout the rest of the first season. One of the finest episodes of that season, though, for comics fans was Tales of the Undead, written by William Taub and Mark Scott Zikri from a story by Paul Monette and Alfred Soule. It was directed by Lyndon Chubbuck. Ryan is making his weekly pilgrimage to the comic store when a thief tries to steal a mint-conditioned copy of the rare comic book Tales of the Undead, which is the first appearance of Ferris, a rom-type warrior. The thief finds himself transformed into Ferris the Invincible as the comic has been cursed by Jay Starr, played by Ray Walston, as a punishment on his business partner for unfair practices. The comic shop scenes are fun, as it must have been a real comic book store that they filmed this in, albeit redressed slightly. There's a mixture of real titles on the stands, interestingly, mostly Marvel, mixed in with a couple of fake issues of Tales of the Undead and others, as well as a copy of Star Wars 1 on the back wall and a few Mego Star Trek dolls. The most recent comic I could spot on the stands was the graphic novel Emperor Doom, making this episode's filming date to be around March-April 1987. Jay's backstory, from changing his name, to having his character stolen from him, to being incredibly bitter about the comics business, is obviously taken from a mixture of Jack Kirby and Jerry Siegel and Joe Shuster. And actor Ray Walston excels in the role. Likewise, this isn't a character in the show getting a sudden hobby that will never be mentioned again. Ryan's interest in comics was mentioned as far back as the pilot episode. The use of comic book panels to depict the curse, i.e. the character from the comic essentially stepping out of the comic book, pulling the character slash actor into the book before that character then becomes Ferris the Invincible, is really well done. Ryan even takes a moment to explain to Mickey the appeal of comics in this clip. When you're a kid, the whole world doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, you're either too little or you're too young. You're not treated as a human. Everybody can kick you around any way they want to. But then you pick up a comic book. And they got these heroes in there that nobody can kick around. They just can do anything, you know? So you buy a comic, you read it, and you're the hero. Uh, now, maybe I missed something. Let me try again. Solid steel armor, invulnerable, superhuman strength. My gosh, when we meet up with this character, he's going to be one tough customer. I think I found him. It's a testament to Mickey as a character that she doesn't belittle Ryan's love of comics. Rather, she tries to understand what he sees in them. It's nice to see comics treated this well, especially in the late 1980s, where comics were normally shorthand for the illiterate and the unintelligent. 
Jay takes back the cursed comic from the kid who stole it, killing him in the process. Jay then goes about killing the people who screwed him over, and it's up to Mickey and Ryan to track down the comic and return it to the store. Tales of the Undead is a really good episode, especially if you like comic books. For one, to find decent representation of comic fans in this era of television was rare. We were all functioning illiterates at best, or childish deviants at worst. Yes, the kid who kicks this all off is a bit socially maladjusted, but Ryan seems pretty normal, whatever normal means, and he likes comics, and has been seen to like comics since the start of the series. Towards the end, Mickey even starts to see what Ryan sees in these things, inquiring about if Ryan has the next issue, as she really wants to learn what happened next. Secondly, this is the first time Mickey and Ryan have tackled a case on their own, with Jack mentioned as being in Singapore for some reason, and Chris Wiggins being absent from the episode completely. This allows for a deepening of the relationship between the two main characters, and Mickey sees there's more to Ryan than smart-ass quipster. It's a good episode for the dynamic between the two of them. Thirdly, the limited budget works really well for this episode. As mentioned, the use of comic panels to show the transformations is well done, and whilst the art is crude, it matches Mickey's descriptions of the comics. And finally, as with any good anthology, the episode is only as good as its guest actor, and Ray Walston was one of the best, doing great work in this episode as the man wronged and out for vengeance. Overall, Tales of the Undead is fun, with a few scurs, some laughs and a well-put-together story. Yes, it's cheap, but it's also cheerful. Friday the 13th of the series was pretty good overall. There's a lot to be said for a product that knows what it is and tries to be the best at that, and Friday the 13th had no illusions about what it was. It was a syndicated, low-budget horror series that gave the viewing public exactly what they wanted. The show ran successfully for three seasons, and could have easily sustained more, but having completed the requisite number of episodes for its market, in this case 70, the production company pulled the plug, rather unceremonially, before the third season could be completed. As such, and unsurprisingly for this era of TV, no conclusion was ever filmed. Horror TV is pretty prevalent today, with American Horror Story, The Purge TV Show, The Haunting of Hill House, and many others, even possessing a dedicated channel on Amazon Prime. But back in the day, horror had scoured the channels for anything that even remotely chilled the bones, and Late Night was where it was at for me. As mentioned, we didn't have syndication. We had late night television, and ITV tended to err US imports in the wee hours, along with old Hammer horror movies, and this was where I first came across Friday the 13th, the series. And who knows? With no definitive ending, maybe Curious Goods is still open. Maybe its owners are still looking for curios and curiosities. Maybe that weird-looking statue you picked up on holiday was cursed by the devil.
On your mark, get set, go for the Fire and Water Network Superman Virtual Run. Coming this October, join comic books fans and fellow Fire and Water Network listeners in a 5K run. Obviously, we can't all run together in the same place, but you can do this anywhere you want. You can run or even walk around your hometown, around the block, nature trails, or even a treadmill. You can make this race your own. We're doing this in conjunction with the official DC Comics Superman Virtual Run. This official virtual run comes with some cool Superman swag, and it's helping raise money for charity. For our Fire and Water Network run, we're recommending running a 5K. However, anyone can participate by running or even just walking as little as one mile, or you can do 5K or 10K. Your choice. For those participating, just pick any date in October to run. Many of us are targeting the week of October 18th through 24th, but any October date works. For more information and to register for the Fire and Water Network run, visit our Sign Up Genius page at fireandwaterpodcast.com slash run2021. That's R-U-N-2021. Once you're on the Sign Up Genius page, you'll need the access code to enter. The access code is simply the word JOY, all lowercase J-O-Y. Now, there's no cost to join this Fire & Water Network run. However, we strongly encourage you to also register for the official DC Comics Superman Virtual Run on their website. It's a fun program that comes with great Superman run perks. Their fee is $40 per individual, but remember, they are helping raise money for charity. So join us for this fun, healthy, and super heroic event in October. Remember, to participate, you can do as little as walking just one mile. For more details and to sign up, visit fireandwaterpodcast.com slash run2021 and use the access code JOY. On your mark, get set, go! Okay, let's have a look at the email section. Rob McCarthy emailed in um, and got in preempting this show. I am really looking forward to your Friday the 13th episode as I used to love this show. Well, I hope you enjoyed it, having heard it. Uh, I think the show's quite fun, to be brutally honest with you. Our next email is from Tim Elliott. Episode 190, Run, Logan, Run. Hello, runner. Don't bother trying to hide your life clock. I see it blinking red. Prepare to be retired. Andy, great show as always. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Much appreciated. Like any good critic, you never treat anything as trivial or beneath you. Well, I try not to. I purchased the season of Logan's Run, the cheap, and binged it one day whilst working from home. Anyone who works from home with a TV in the room will find yourself getting distracted watching the telly. The show did not have me taking too many breaks. I agree with all your points on the lack of direction. The series is the opposite of Star Trek The Motion Picture. It started as a sequel, Star Wars hits, and then it's rushed onto TV. It's a shame, because I have a lot of affection for the film, and it's not all down to Jenny Agatha's choice of clothing. I feel the film has a lot to say, but suffers from a studio-led SFX team. When I was in Texas, I lived about 30 miles from the Fort Worth Water Gardens. We would visit and pretend to be Logan, diving in the water to save the city. Nowadays, I'm more like Peter Ustinov, waiting to see the young kids. I look forward to your next show. Hurry before I'm called to carousel. Cheers, Tim Elliott. Third degree burn. Well, thank you, Tim. I very much enjoyed Logan's run, actually. I enjoyed revisiting it. Yeah, it's, you know, it has problems. It's a 1977 television show but let's not forget two of those episodes were genuinely good um and that's not bad out of a 13 episode run you know we we all know other shows that ran maybe the same length of time that uh, didn't produce any good episodes so you know i think the production the production crew tried their best i think there was just you know elements beyond their control that may have got in the way 
Okay, that about wraps it up for this time. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that look at Friday the 13th. It's merely the prelude to next time's Halloween episode. Yes, I'm jumping the shark and doing a Halloween episode. I will be looking at Starsky and Hutch investigating the vampire. Yes, totally, for real, Starsky and Hutch investigated a vampire. Absolutely, yep. I'm not kidding. You think I'm kidding? I'm not kidding. Uh, hey, kids, comics at virginmedia.com. You can email me if you wish to join in with the festivities. Take care, and I'll see you all again real soon. Goodbye. <laughs>